This episode contains profanity. We know that Latino kids are almost twice as likely as white kids to be suspended from school. Black kids are nearly four times as likely. And if a student has been suspended even once by the time they're in ninth grade, they are twice as likely to drop out. Public education in Minnesota is imploding. It's crumbling. It's fractured. Disrespectful kids disrupt learning. Kids ignore, swear, threaten, and get physical with teachers who feel unsafe and disrespected. You know, there have been some disciplined situations where kids have uh, told the teachers disrespectful type of things, and you know that uh, that stuff is pretty unfortunate because I think it just lowers the, the morale of teachers, and you know I think there's definitely some teachers that are kind of fed up with all the things that are going on. Is this the new norm? Weary teachers are retreating or retiring. We're seeing a, a lot of teachers toward the end of their career who are saying, this, this just isn't fun anymore. Administrators don't want parents to know what's going on behind closed doors. So what happens in schools stays in schools. As the bar of expectations is continually lowered, proficiency plummets. Violence is up. Schools lack accountability. Kids lack consequences. All because of an ill-conceived policy created by powerful people in the highest levels of government nearly a decade ago. And that's why my administration has been working with schools on alternatives to the so-called zero-tolerance guidelines. Not everything that sounds good is good. They thought changing the approach to discipline from punitive to positive would teach kids to learn about each other's perspectives and build empathy and understanding. They were wrong. And that's the story I'm going to tell you in this episode. I'm Sheila Qualls. I write for a Minnesota-based news outlet called Alpha News. I've written a series of articles on ideologies, policies, and practices that allow violence, misconduct, and low performance to go unchecked. For the past six months, we've been examining public education. I've interviewed teachers, parents, and students. I've talked to people who study education in Minnesota. I've looked at curriculum and school websites. I've contacted the Department of Education, the Minnesota School Board Association, the Teachers Union, and administrators. I'm going to paint a picture of what is going on in our schools and why. Not in my words, but in the words of teachers, students, and parents who are in or around public schools every day. Thousands of Minnesota families are trapped, held hostage by a system that is shaped by misguided and irresponsible policies and practices that are at odds with traditional values. The threat of losing our children is real. Most teachers and parents spoke with us on the promise of anonymity. Small details have been changed to protect students' identities. They fear retaliation. Dissent is not tolerated. Disagreement is voiced only in whispers. Throughout this series, I'm going to show you everything from why kids can't read to why they have to worry about getting stabbed at school. This is episode two of Trapped, Chaos in the Classroom. Standardized test scores are the lowest they've been in decades. A recent report exposed 19 public schools in Minnesota that didn't have one kid proficient in math. Only 42% of kids can read at grade level. 
missing deadlines, flunking tests, they go without penalty. One teacher said students can keep retaking tests until they can correctly guess enough answers to pass. And yet, graduation rates climb. In episode one, I told you about the violence in Minnesota classrooms and how test scores fall as mayhem rises. In this episode, I'm going to show you how race-based school discipline practices and softer policies contribute to the decline in performance and an increase in chaos. This practice is called restorative justice. Basically, black kids and white kids are not held to the same standard when it comes to behavior and discipline. I'm going to tell you how that practice became part of school culture in Minnesota and how it changed the landscape of classrooms across the country. From the video that we can, that we have, you can see there were three boys guarding a door and one boy getting hit repeatedly. It seems like in this situation, when there was no discipline being done to any of the students of color when they were physically attacking other students, that made it feel like they were pitting the students against each other. As a parent in this world today, you do not want to be the one saying, hey, I don't think you're disciplining the children of color. That will automatically make you seem like a racist, prejudiced person. And unfortunately, that's something that the school was doing. So I felt like my hands were tied in that situation, and they were forcing me to take a look at it from that perspective. Right. I've been teaching for over 25 years, and definitely there's been a big change in everything pertaining to the, the school environment outside of our content area. This is Sue. She's taught in the Metro for 25 years. She remembers the good old days of teaching. 25 years ago, a teacher came in armed with extensive knowledge of their subject matter and great methodology and you know, all the tricks of the trade to convey what you know, the content, the curriculum to these students. And that is not the case anymore. There's so much. It's, it's become pressure to be more than just a conveyor of the academics. You have to also be on board for whatever they have deemed be the important things that fill out the rest of that student. More and more teachers are reporting that based on the color of a student's skin, they may or may not get the otherwise typical consequence. Teachers are afraid. They're stressed. They expect to be assaulted. We had another one where two girls in fifth grade beat up uh, my colleague teacher and the um, principal lied and said she slipped on food in the cafeteria. She also has short-term memory loss and uh, partial blindness in the left eye. How did this come to be? In 2014, data showed black and brown kids were three times more likely to be suspended or expelled compared to their white counterparts without considering any other factors like fatherless homes or economic status, the U.S. Department of Education concluded discrimination, not student behavior, was the reason for the disparities. They assumed 
white educators must be inherently biased. Matt Audette is a school board member in the Anoka Hennepin School District. This idea of equity and discipline was new to him. They'll take a look at um, disparities between expulsion rates um, of children of color versus white children in a school district. And, um, and they'll say that, you know, if there are by count more, you know, a disproportionate number of uh, children of color that have been uh, impacted or suspended or, or um, expelled, then, then there can only be one reason for that. And that reason must be racism. And so uh, even, uh, you know, this, this started at the national level. This was discussed. Um, the, the furthest I've gone back and seen discussion of it was uh, by President Obama during the Obama administration. There was a discussion about this disparate or disproportionate impact on kids. And the federal government even tried to incentivize school districts to make changes to um, their practices in order to try to mitigate that. When you look at this topic of equity in these things, discipline has changed. Parents don't know this. Parents expect, you know, so-and-so did something that's worthy of an expulsion. How come they're not being expelled? I know they're not being expelled because three days later, they're back in the same school with my kid. How can it be? Uh, so people don't know that that's happened. So that's a pretty significant problem because basically what we have is behavioral problems that are not being dealt with, which leaves the problem children in the schools in a disrupted environment. It's not good for the rest of the kids. It's not good for the child who could have been or should have been expelled. It's not good for other children who sort of learn, as kids do. You know, you know this from your own kids being little. They learn that where the boundaries are. That same year, Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan issued the Dear Colleague letter on discipline. This letter was to make discipline practices more equitable. The Dear Colleague letter intended to force schools to overhaul their discipline policies. In actuality, it took discipline out of the local districts and placed it in the hands of the federal government. The government was supposed to guide schools in dispensing discipline in a non-discriminatory way. The letter had a marked effect on millions of kids in classrooms across the country. Duncan said racial discrimination in school discipline is a real problem. Schools needed discipline reform. He said the problem was teacher bias, not student behavior. As part of the reform, the Department of Ed decided suspension and expulsion were harmful and damaged kids' self-esteem. They concluded these practices also feed what they called the school-to-prison pipeline. Here's the theory. Kids who are suspended or expelled are more likely to drop out of school, get into trouble, and find their way into the criminal justice system. That's the school-to-prison pipeline. Officer Mark Ross is president of the St. Paul Police Federation and a former school resource officer. He says the school-to-prison pipeline doesn't exist. The data was what it was, and they, they found that, that they were uh, suspending and dismissing and disciplining a disproportionate amount of, of black students in the district. And they thought, okay, how do we need to change this? So we're, rather than actually put some meaningful work forward and, and try and change those things, they changed the way that they dealt with discipline. So they would allow the same behaviors. Previously, those behaviors would, would result in discipline, but no longer. Though the Dear Colleague letter was described as non-binding, it threatened school districts with legal action if they continued to show disparities in expulsions, even if the rules were applied fairly. 
To curb suspensions of kids of color and make discipline more equitable, districts implemented racial equity training for teachers. The practice came with unintended consequences. Many teachers feel like they've lost the support of administrators. I talked about how the kids I felt like I was, that they were not safe in my classroom as they were running out with covering their heads. I did email my superintendent and, this, and CC'd my principal because I had gone to her multiple times, nothing was happening. This is Catherine. She teaches in the Minnetonka School District. She currently teaches fourth grade, but she's also taught kindergarten. And I um, sent pictures of what my room had looked like and just said I'm curious if the school board is aware of that this is happening in our schools because I would love to talk to the school board about what is happening and what we need to do so we, we provide more support for the kids in our class, in our um, schools. And um, basically had a meeting um, the next day, the superintendent, um, in the morning before the day started, it, um, my principal's like, oh, can you come to the office? And I walked in and it was a superintendent, um, my principal, and another admin person, and basically was told, don't say anything. You need to just be quiet and don't go to the school board. I basically felt like it was, if you want to keep your job, don't say anything. But, yeah, so. School districts across the country made race a primary factor in determining discipline. Secretary Duncan said exclusionary discipline or expulsion is harmful and could be safely replaced with more positive methods. Instead of kicking kids out of school, educators try to resolve issues and return kids back to the classroom as soon as possible no matter how violent the behavior. The idea was to replace punishment with talking circles. This way, wrongdoers got a chance to recognize and take responsibility for their actions instead of facing consequences. Schools began incorporating conflict resolution circles and reflection sheets that guided and mediated conversations. These practices were supposed to allow students and communities to come together and feel safe and successful. In some schools, teachers and students pass a talking stick as they share their feelings. This is a YouTube video of a restorative circle. It's not a video from a school in Minnesota, but it demonstrates the concept. So teachers and students sit in circles and talk about conflict in hopes of resolving a problem. Today, we came together to have a circle about a problem Ms. Thomas had with Jonathan. This is the talking piece, and the talking piece is used for, um, we pass it around the circle, and the person who holds the talking piece is the only one who's talking. So, here we're gonna start with a check-in. We should start with Ms. Thomas. I'm a little tired from today's work, but I feel um, happy and good about what we may accomplish here. Yeah, I'm feeling good. We had a nice, um, fun day today, feeling relaxed. Um, and um, we've had conversations before with Jonathan and uh, Ms. Thomas, so I'm looking forward to continuing that and, and doing that work. I'm doing good today. Mm. The reason we're here is because me and Ms. Thomas had an argument before. And so we're here to resolve that problem, and trying to be in a good relationship. I'm doing pretty well today, well, better than I was before. And yeah, I'm excited to get the circle going. 
Restorative justice practices are taking a toll on teachers. Some districts are having a hard time keeping teachers. They're quitting because students are out of control. Uh, we had teachers assaulted, and uh, it was a substitute teacher. So she called the police, and they put her on a blacklist where she couldn't sub in St. Paul schools anymore. At the end of her lawsuit, she walked away with $120,000 because they were discriminatory towards her right to call the police and tell them I was assaulted. Didn't matter where. This is Trish. She hosts a popular podcast called Teacher Therapy. Trish said she quit teaching after eight years because she felt like she couldn't tell the truth about what was going on in the classroom. As a result, she began suffering high levels of anxiety and depression. When kids aren't held accountable, she said, they're not the best versions of themselves. This is from an episode called Out of Control Students Get Zero Consequences. Trish didn't teach in Minnesota, but many teachers in the state echoed her experience. Oftentimes, the worst behaved kids <laughs> are the ones that are getting all of the rewards because that's a teacher's only recourse. So they're trying everything that they can do to try to motivate the worst behaved kids by saying, you know, I'll give you $25, scholar I'll give you a bag of candy, I'll give you, you know, a 15 minute sit in the teacher's desk pass, just whatever we can think of, honestly, to motivate the most challenging students because we know we can't just say, fine, you're sitting out of recess or fine, that's detention for you. That's not there anymore. So it actually effectively ends up happening in a lot of these scenarios is the best behaved kids that are like always quiet and never causing a problem. Many times those kids get passed over and all of the attention still goes to the most misbehaved kids. So in weird ways, it's almost like their negative behavior is reinforced. And in even worse scenarios, believe this or not, many teachers will believe it. Um, the worst behaved kids, if you do dare send them to the office, they will actually come back with snacks. They had iPads time. They got to spend one-on-one -on -one time with the principal, building a relationship, and oftentimes talking about how horrible the teacher is. And again, weirdly enough, a lot of these systems aren't even being used the way they're supposed to be. They're just kind of getting used in crisis mode and bribe the kid mode. <laughs> As districts adopted restorative justice, discipline went from functional and fair to tender and ineffective. It also faced scrutiny as some questioned, is this legal? Should discipline be determined by the color of a kid's skin? The main problem with restorative justice is there's no evidence that it actually works. We have this policy in St. Paul schools and many public schools across the nation right now where children aren't held to accountability for their behavior. For example, I had a kid tell me to go get fucked. I first told him to call his father. God, he did. <laughs> I was over teaching. And then I put him out of my room, sent him to the office, get the kid back in about five minutes with uh, candy. And I, <laughs> I was not happy about that. And the child says, gee, Mr. Severance, what did I get you? I put him out of my room, but you're not supposed to. You're supposed to take what they say. Well, I am a career teacher. I taught social studies. I had uh, a big chunk doing advanced placement U.S. history. I taught 20 semesters of African-American history. I developed the first 
Asian American history class where the emphasis was on the immigrant experience, not just Asian studies. And I always spent time working with our at-risk ninth graders. This is Roy Magnuson. He's retired now, but he taught in the St. Paul Public Schools for over 30 years. I was a secondary teacher. I did some middle school, but most of my career was at the high school level. The idea that it is okay to say that we have what we used to call a culture of school, where you came to school and you brought yourself, but you also brought your materials, you brought a desire to learn, you brought a desire to be a student, and being a student involved being prepared, it involved being prompt, it involved being courteous, it involved wanting to come out of each class period or each assignment having added something to both your content base. He said, looking back, the Dear Colleague letter wasn't such a good idea. At some point in time, weigh the very real question that is part of the debate now, too, of where are the rights of the many to a non-disrupted learning environment sacrificed for the more singular rights of the individual or the few. We reduce the desire to say, you can do better. Restorative justice is the demarcation line between how schools used to be and how they are now. With this new approach, teachers began to struggle to control their classrooms. A discipline policy that mandates treating kids differently based on the color of their skin is a recipe for disaster. The Dear Colleague letter was suspended in 2018, but not before it had become ingrained in school policy and culture. The damage was done. The policy was rescinded, but the practices continued. Minnesota adopted its own version of the Dear Colleague letter. Matt Audette in the Anoka Hennepin School District. On the academic side, it's a lot of look at the, the various ways that uh, we assess performance of kids, uh, grading standards, the traditional ABC structure of grading, um, testing and evaluation has been a big problem. There's statements that, that those systems are, you know, the questions, the way they're designed and written are, uh, have some component of racism or they, they bias or they advantage one group over another. And so they're, you know, we're making changes to, to practices called standards-based grading instead of traditional grading. And standards-based grading is, seems much more subjective in October of 2017, Minnesota Department of Human Rights Commissioner Kevin Lindsay sent a letter to 43 Minnesota districts. The letter threatened districts with investigation unless they agreed to notify the department before expelling kids of color. So in effect, they stopped expelling kids of color. Rather than being expelled, which just adds uh, to the record, um, and, and could set kids up for a disadvantage later in life, which is true, um, it could, but rather than do that, they've really moved away from expulsions. And I think they, and that's across the board. Lindsay's letter set off a chain of bad practices and has led to increased violence in the classroom and disorder in districts across the state. When you take the parents out of the equation and don't involve them in any kind of change that their student might be going through at the school or um, any kind of 
mental health, in a way, is how I would see it, um, it can become dangerous. The Phillips have three children. They attend school in Farmington. Yeah, I'm, I'm Nick Phillips. We've lived here for about seven years and just seen a nonstop spiral downward since we've been here. With conventional discipline thrown aside, classroom conduct spiraled out of control. Aaron Phillips worked as a paraprofessional in the Farmington School District. My son let me know recently of a fight between a trans girl and a biological girl at Farmington High School. Um, I don't know the students, but I have heard that there are fights. Um, there is vandalism at Farmington High School. The bathrooms are not a place that these kids can go comfortably. I'd walk into the, the bathrooms and you would have kids vaping. You have marijuana use in the bathrooms. My son says that he can smell those. Sinks have been ripped off the walls, soap dispensers. Um, there's no, it's, it, the behavior is just unbelievable. And I don't feel like anyone's really held accountable. This is also a school district that they have four vice president principals, one principal and the superintendent all based at the high school can't find subs, can't afford to pay them, can't find teachers, can't afford to pay them. But these five, six leadership roles within the school can't even hold these students accountable or we continue to give them raises, we can't hire teachers to get hold them accountable. So it's this continual downward spiral. Kids think they can get away with anything and they can because nobody's there to stop them. Sue teaches in the Metro. She said restorative justice is divisive, but it's alive and well in Minnetonka. What you'd find with the restorative justice is that the color of student has become one of the primary determinants or factors in, in deciding how to manage this, this issue, this conflict. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's so much, I mean, there's so much inherent racism in that, that no one really wants to call out. For decades, schools have had rules and policies that applied equally to all. It's divisive, because then you've got other students who said, wait, I just got suspended for two days and got reamed, you know, because I did this, that, the other thing, but I know that those guys did that and nothing happened. Sue said restorative justice practices demoralize kids of all colors because zero tolerance only applies to white kids who are held to the standards of traditional discipline. How do you keep order in a system where the rules apply to some, but they don't apply to others. It's, it's stressful. It, it, it sucks a lot of the life and the joy out of teaching every day because you're walking on eggshells. It's not just that. It's, it's a million things that detract from just coming in, enjoying your students, getting to know your students, and... In, in all the ways that make them wonderful, not the ways that they want to put out there to divide one side from the other, but all the wonderful, common, common experience that you can, you know, have in a classroom. Teachers are calling it quits in more ways than one. I just think that you're seeing a lot of teachers toward the end of their career who are saying, this just isn't fun anymore, and they're retiring. I mean, they're. I know a lot of people who are retiring earlier than they otherwise would need to. Or, what's really unfortunate, I'm thinking of one teacher um, who I knew who completely, well, a couple actually, the more I think about it, who have recently switched professions. It's, it's just not fun anymore. It's stressful. 
the practices are a social contagion. Some kids take advantage because they know there are no consequences. And kids who might otherwise not act out feel peer pressure to do so. You have 30, 31 kids in your room. That behavior then uh, will get to border kids who might also cause problems. Well, if he can say that to him and get away with it, then why can't I say it to him or other teachers, which some had. And I believe it's because of the process of restored justice. This is Catherine again from Minnetonka. She said many teachers feel like their hands are tied by the state's policies. Like we don't have much consequences, you know, like it is, um, so if a child doesn't do something right, I mean, like, yes, they can go to the principal's office or do something, but there's not as much of like, I feel like there was more of a fear. Like if a teacher even just, if I say I'm going to call your parents, like they don't really care. But before, like you could do that and they wouldn't want that. So I do like, I think that for me as a teacher is like one of the biggest challenges is I feel like you tell a kid to do something, like I just hope that they do it because if they don't, like there's really not much I can do if they don't do it. Um, and that's sort of like, I mean, like I will have a kid this year who say, well, like you can't make me. I'm like, you're right. I can't make you do it. But he has a smiley face, straight face, sad face chart. I can give you a sad face if you don't do what you're supposed to do. Um, you know, like, I mean, that's kind of like what I hold over these kids. Like, so that's, I think, like, the hardest thing is there's not consequences. Like, there should be. And part of it is to protect the kids. It's like the school districts are tied because of what the states are telling them what we can do and what can't do, too. Why do they not remove the child from class for a period of time, three, four days, five days, or discipline the child. Why is none of that done? That's a great question. I would like to know that. But I would say um, it does depend on your principal, your administration, um, because I've had principals that are like, if that happens and that child is out, they're done. Like they, um, so that child can know that their behavior is not okay because what I think is when they don't have a consequence, they don't see that their behavior is wrong. And then the other kids are also not seeing that their behavior is wrong too. So, um, but, so it dep- t- depends on administration support. I think um, laziness on the admin, um, it's work for them to have to find where that child's going to be, have to make the phone calls. I will say the one time when the child went to the principal's office and destroyed her office, the child was sent home that day. She said she sees the effects of the two-tiered discipline structure on younger kids. Lenient discipline policies don't end well for the students they're supposed to help. In fact, some believe restorative justice has done more harm than good. These practices promote a lower standard of behavior among minorities and foment bitterness and resentment in others. These reforms have wreaked havoc on schools and bred a host of unintended consequences. Crafted by bureaucrats who don't spend their days in classrooms, they're clearly not working. Any of the Somali kids were um, disrespectful or had any kind of discipline referral. They never went to the assistant principal or the dean anymore. They went to the cultural liaison. One student started chanting, anytime I walked around the corner of my room to get something, the leader and a couple others would start chanting, F you. A lack of consequences is making teaching and learning tough. Discipline is designed to keep order and to keep kids safe. It should have no color. 
but the revised practices have made students and teachers feel less safe. And when kids don't feel safe, they're less likely to learn. I just walked outside and I stopped and I cracked the door and I could hear that they were exactly doing this and I knew which student it was who started it. I could even see through the crack in the door. I opened up the door really quickly and looked right at him and uh, it was obvious he was, you know, he was the ringleader of it. So when I took that to the administration to say this is what's happening, you know, if we need a discipline referral, nope, that's when I learned it didn't even go through the regular channels. It went through the cultural liaison and that student barely got a slap on the wrist. So much for, you know, my first case of restorative justice. This is Sheila Qualls, and you're listening to Trapped, Chaos in the Classroom. Listen to episode three to find out more about policies and practices that are hurting our kids. One of the principals at one of our schools put up the Ku Klux Klan mask. And first day of school, first meeting, and all the white people had to remain quiet for 15 minutes to absorb the guilt of the of what the Ku Klux Klan did. Trapped is a podcast from Alpha News. It's reported by me and produced by Kendall Johnson of Underdog Films. Editing by Karen Sullivan. Fact-checking by Anthony Gokowski and Greg Pullis. Our theme music is by Kendall Johnson. We have three more episodes coming. You'll be able to find them on our website. Subscribe at mntrapped.com. This podcast is also available on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.